Hey, it's Seth Godin. In the summer of 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to spend three days with a group of extremely motivated entrepreneurs, people right at the beginning of building their project, launching their organization. During those three days, I took them on a guided tour of some of the questions they were going to have to wrestle with, some of the difficult places they were going to just stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm making. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but I hope this is the next best thing. Excerpts from the live event, unrehearsed, no slides. Here it is. Enjoy it. But even more important, I hope you do something with it. Thanks for listening. If you can live on those people, that's enough, right? That's what a raw food juice bar in a low-rent district can do. On the other hand, if you say, no, I need five million vegetarians so I can get Kraft as a sponsor, that tribe isn't who you should start with. Because what will make that tribe happy will never make five million vegetarians and Kraft happy. So figure out how to get from where you start to where you need to be is critical. If there is no path, there's something wrong with your business. And that goes all the way back to where do you want to build your property? Right? And how much does it cost you to get a vegetarian? And what is a vegetarian worth? Which was the, the um, question after how much does it cost to make a sale is what's the lifetime value of a sale? So let's talk about this. How many of those pairs of shoes do you own, Chris? Five, and they cost 48 bucks each. No, oh, because you got the leather accents. 90 bucks each. So Chris is worth... Chris is worth 450 bucks to this little shop in Oregon, right? Not every one of their customers is worth 450 bucks, but Chris is. Now, if you make a product that people only need to buy once in their whole life, it's very different than if you make a product that people are going to use every day forever. So how much is Starbucks willing to spend to get someone addicted to espresso? The answer is probably $100. They're probably willing to spend $100 on real estate to get one person hooked because their lifetime value is $500. Do you see that? Right? So when someone's competing with Starbucks, they say it's not fair. The rent's too high. Starbucks says, no, 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 the rent's not too high because I'm creating a thousand addicts every time I put in a new facility. So they've taken the correct view in a competitive market. If you are Henry Luce and you're building a weekly news magazine, how much are you willing to spend to get one new subscriber to Time Magazine? Well, you do the math. You say if someone subscribes, you're probably going to subscribe for six years. And doing the math of 40 ads per issue, 50 issues a year, five years, blah, 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 blah. Each subscriber to Time Magazine is worth $200 to me. So if someone comes to you and say, buy TV ads to get your subscribers to Time, and the ads are 250 you buy them. 200 150 you buy them, because you make a profit. So it's all built into the structure, and how do you maximize the lifetime value of someone who is expensive to reach. So someone in Kit's case, for example, not a lot of repeat business because first you've got to come back to Miami as a tourist and secondly you've got to get, want to do it again. So most of the value she's going to create is from that first interaction. On the other hand, if it's fabulous, that person is likely to tell their friends when they go home. So suddenly the cost of marketing goes down because people are telling one another. Two things are happening 
and I want to call them out. If they're not happening to you, that's fabulous. Thing number one is some of you are saying, how do I make all of what I've learned this morning work for the structure of the business I'm already committed to? And the parts that don't work, you're ignoring. And some of you are saying, this is a vast, untapped territory. I have no chance of succeeding. I'm never going to get it right. I surrender. And both of them are the wrong responses. So let's take them one at a time. The entrepreneurs, by their nature, are... Can we take it down just a little, Brian? Entrepreneurs, by their nature, are willful and strong-willed and bullheaded and committed because if we're not, we fail. But sometimes we get hung up on the confusing between sticking with the right path and sticking with the wrong path. So the person who insists on pushing their independent bookstore, independent bookstore, independent bookstore, in the face of what's happening in the world isn't a persistent entrepreneur. They're a fool. Right? They say, I've got to figure out how to sell e-books. No, you're never going to be able to sell e-books in your independent bookstore. Don't try. There's lots of things you can do in your independent bookstore, but falling in love with the archetype or the vision you have in your head is not the way to do it. So if all you've taken away from the last four hours is that these things are interesting on the side, but I just got to stick with making better Thai food, you've completely missed the point. And the more degrees of freedom you introduce over the next few hours, then you'll lock them back in, the more likely it is you're going to build a business that works. And I'm going to give you more and more examples of how that happens, because I only have a couple of these questions left, but you're going to need to feel the texture of the examples to see how this works in the connection economy, which doesn't necessarily mean on the net. It just means that that's what we're valuing now. The second group of you, and I can see it in your eyes, is saying, ah, it's possible to build a perfect entrepreneurial project. I can't, because I don't see it. And you have to start before you see the end. There's no way to do this without starting before you see the end. You build the fundamental building blocks. You put them in place so that every day success leads to more success. And it will get you somewhere. But what it is you're tr where you're trying to go isn't what you're going to uh, have the first day. It's more about... Did this interaction permit me to survive? Did this interaction permit, permit me to survive? Can I keep piling on these interactions one after another so that it becomes a virtuous cycle along the way? So Mark asked about my blog. I talk about blogs a lot because it's good for the soul, but it's also an extraordinarily inexpensive, low-risk tribe-building tool. That if you commit to writing something for your tribe, not about you, but for your tribe every day. Over time, you will increase the footprint you have with your tribe and the trust that your tribe gives you, and it's free. And then those people will email you and you will find out what they are thinking, which is free. And then these interactions will scale, which is free. And at some point you will decide you hate these people and you should shut it down. <laughs> or you will decide you want to do for these people and you want to be with these people and you want to leverage these people, in which case the business ideas will just come to you. They'll just keep presenting themselves over and over and over again. So if you look at Boing Boing, one of the most popular blogs ever, 
their business model is a little flaky. I mean, they make some money on advertising. But basically, Corey and Mark and Zenny have all these doors open to them because there's a million mutants on Earth who trust them. A million people who, if they say, I'm writing a new book, will go buy it. A million people who, if they say, I'm going to be in New York, come to, to you know, this reading I'm doing, will come. And Kevin Kelly calls these people the 1,000 true fans. If there are 1,000 people who will fly to Hastings and spend three days with you, you never have to look for work for the rest of your life. You're done. 1,000 people, that's all it takes. And so I am not patient with folks who say it has to be perfect and it has to be proven and then I'll do it. Because it will never be perfect and it will never be proven. All I can do is keep piling up the examples and then interact with you as we talk about this. And you're going to need to think really hard about what story do you want someone who hears you to tell about what you do. So if I said to you, um, tell someone who's never experienced it what Nike products are like, and you talked about Nike, most of you would say something that would make Phil Knight happy. Same thing with Harley Davidson, an iconic brand that, own, that has a monopoly on what it stands for. But if I said, tell to the person next to you about Delta Airlines, even though Delta Airlines spends millions of dollars a year on something they call marketing, you'd all say something different based on some random personal experience. They can pretend they have some slogan. They can pretend they have some tagline, but they have no connection. No one other than a frequent flyer mile holder would miss Delta if they went out of business and it would be replaced by a different airline. No one would miss them. So the key to what you're building is, can you build something that would be missed if it was gone? Right? Can you become the speaker or the impresario or the connector or the software developer that if you weren't there, we'd have to hassle before we found someone who could do it? Okay, does that all make sense? So far? Great. Now, I want to just go through the last few questions, which aren't nearly as important at the beginning, which is one, how do I make what I'm making significantly more cheaply? So in the case of uh, somebody who uh, wants to run a successful bar and grill, if the scarce thing they offer is a great environment to drink whiskey and beer, and they're spending a fortune making chicken sandwiches, they probably could spend less money making chicken sandwiches and still have the place be what they need it to be. So one of the things to think about as we're starting these things is, what have you built into your assumptions that's going to make it hard and expensive that you could skip and still make it uh, scarce and valuable? And one of the ways to do that is by using off-the-shelf off software that lots of times people say, I have to build this perfect piece of software to make everything work, when in fact maybe you don't have to do anything of the sort. Maybe you just build these things in Keynote, export them to the iPad, and they work, and you haven't spent a penny on development. Sorry. Uh, can I do it faster? Can I figure out how to interact with people in a way that gives me more the A on your cup alacrity? One of the big advantages you have of being small and being new is you don't have a committee, you don't have processes, it's just you. Well, sometimes that's a disadvantage, but lots of times it's an advantage. 
when I was a book packager and it was just me, I was able to get a book from an idea to done in five days. And a lot of the people we were working with couldn't even have a meeting about doing something in five days, and we were done. Now, not every customer wants that, but that's an interesting place for you to start, right? Start with people who value the thing you can do as opposed to pretending to be someone else. And then we're going to spend a lot of time talking about shipping, which is it's so easy to become paralyzed in the pursuit of perfect that you end up not being good. That you're so worried about launching in this spectacular way that you never do. And I think launching in the connection economy is way overrated. It's not important at all. The big gala, the large book signing, the press releases all on the first day, it doesn't matter anymore because the media you were trying to put that show on for is gone. That what matters is, you know, you didn't start using Gmail until it had been out for a year. And you didn't start subscribing to that magazine until it had been in business for 40 years. And you didn't start going out for Starbucks coffee until it had been there for years. So this idea that the first day everyone has to come isn't what's going to happen. What's going to happen is a few people are going to interact with you uh, enough that they understand the value. They trust you to deliver the value. And they pay you for it. A friend of mine named Danny started a business called Daily Candy. And the deal is, you're a woman, you're into fashion, you live in one of 10 metropolitan areas. All I want from you is your email address. That's all I want. And now every day for the rest of your life, I'm going to send you an email with nice illustrations to tell you something cool that's happening in your city. Prada's having a sample sale. There's a cool party going on in this bar. They just opened this new Lomans branch, whatever. Okay? So she ran this for a few years, sending out an email every day. And she and Bob Pittman sold it to Comcast for this much money. Now, I'm not saying money is the only point here. What I'm saying is, what did she create that was valuable? What she had was permission and trust of a few people. Not a lot, just a million. Right? Only one out of 300 people in the country. But they said, if your email doesn't show up every day, I'm going to complain. I'm waiting every day patiently for your email to show up. If it's not here, I'm going to miss it. And two, if you tell me about something, I'm more likely to try it. So if you said... I want to figure out how to get the largest possible, those are arrows, how to get the largest possible number of the right people in Charlotte to get an email from me three times a week. All I'm going to send them is a video that I'm going to make of me interviewing someone from a different nonprofit three times a week. It's only three minutes long about why they're amazing. Drip, drip, drip. Drip. Over time, if you get a video that resonates with you, you can forward it to all your friends. Can't do that with a website. And drip, 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 the number of people who are subscribing goes up. So now if you call up a nonprofit and say, hi, I want to feature you in this email that I send to 12,000 people every day, and oh, by the way, I know you get it, and I'm going to produce it, and by the way, you know how good my videos are because you've seen them, 
can I come? They'll say, can you be here in an hour? Why wouldn't they? And the asset that you are building that you can point to is not a website that's hard to change. It's a MailChimp email list that every day gets more valuable. It will never get less valuable. See what I'm getting at? And then the success stories that get created are simple. And I'm going to show you an example. Um, when you get a chance, everyone just clap your hands once, really loud. Ah, you're too good, you're insane. All right, this time, we're going to do it all at the same time. One, two, three. The difference is significant, even though the first time you did it too in sync. But when there's lots of little claps, it doesn't count for very much. But if everyone claps at the same time, we notice it. So you become this power broker, because you'll be able to say, I've got these 15,000 people who are nascent volunteers or nascent philanthropists, and you're the next one I pick. And then you can go to charity and say, you know, I picked you and you didn't convert, so I'm not going to pick you anymore. But we learned something, which is when we did this story and the conversion was easier to do, a whole bunch of people went and did it. So Kickstarter was started to say, there's all these projects that would get done if we knew in advance that people were going to buy it. And I want to make a record album. If I just knew that 1,000 of my fans were going to buy it, I could easily have the confidence to make it. And if they all put up 10 bucks up front, I could actually walk into the recording studio. We're done. So Kickstarter said, here's a platform. It's very simple. Go to your fans and say, this is what I will make if you put up enough money. And if you don't, you'll get your money back. This is like your book. My book. I did on Kickstarter. Now, once again... People confuse on the internet the mechanics to do something and what actually makes it work. Kickstarter is irrelevant. If you have an audience that you can reach, you can do it without Kickstarter. There's all these Kickstarter clones. Kickstarter adds almost no value to someone who has an audience. For my book, 4% of the money that came in came from Kickstarter, 96% came from people I sent to Kickstarter. So it's not like Kickstarter has this community of eager philanthropists the way Kelly's going to have. Kickstarter just has a piece of software that lets me adjudicate demand with supply. With me? Now, this is really different than Casey Kasem or Clive Davis. Casey Kasem goes to all these radio stations and says, every week I will give you a two-hour radio show We'll split the commercials. Half the commercials you'll sell, half the commercials I'll sell. Everybody wins. And for years and years and years, Casey made millions of dollars making a radio show. Now, who has the power, the musician or Casey? The answer is Casey has the power. Why does Casey have the power? Because Casey has a relationship with the radio stations, and the radio stations have the relationship with the listeners. So if Casey wants to make you famous, he can. And if you want to pay him a gratuity, that's fine. But the artist has no power whatsoever. Kickstarter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you guys have been reading Permission Marketing and everything, and you as an artist already have a relationship with your reader, your listener, your fan, we will let you go straight to that person, leaving Casey Kasem, Clive Davis, and Sonny Mehta out of the equation, because you can publish yourself. Right? Is everyone keeping up with this? You interrupt me if I'm going too fast. But, and this is what you and I were talking about, artists hate this. They don't like having to keep track of all these fans. They don't like having to collect all these addresses. They don't like people complaining because the statue of the Icarus is fuzzy. Right? They just, they just want to make their work. 
So if someone came forward and said, I am the Casey Kasem of big thinkers, and my first project is Clay Shirky's new book, and I will keep you posted on how Clay is doing, and Clay's in the video, so you know he and I are doing it together, everyone would think that would be great. Now you have their email addresses, you and Clay, they're in this file. If you email everybody a month later and say, hey, it's Kate, I'm back again, remember I brought you Clay last month? This month, I'm bringing you Jeff Jarvis. Right? Now, some people are going to be annoyed and think, well, no, no, I signed up for Clay. That's what permission is, keeping promises. But if you were clear up front, they get Kate's new job. Kate is the impresario of big thinkers monetizing their work for their fans. So with each person, you get the new big thinkers email list where he's going to alert them via their blog or she's going to alert them via Twitter. Plus, you get your back, uh, I don't want to say list, your back asset of all the people who have funded your previous projects. Who does this sound like? Bill Graham. So Bill Graham Presents is exactly it. He owned Winterland, but he also rented the Cow Palace. He could find a venue anytime he wanted to. But no one ever came to hear Bill Graham perform, because he had no talent. They came to hear The Dead. They came to hear Jefferson Starship, right? Well, what Bill built were these network of relationships, and you knew that if Bill was going to break a new act, it was probably worth going to. So what I was saying about impresarios, and I wanted to talk about that anyway, so thank you, is there's this huge vacuum. We need Bill Graham, but he's dead. So where does the next Bill Graham exist? He is the person, or she is the person, who is the broker of trust and attention and talent and building a bridge between them. And what we see is you know, Amanda Palmer, who's wonderful, she's not going to make a lot of money on her record. And she's going to have a nervous breakdown because she's just put herself completely into this thing. And then when she's done and she goes to recover, that asset's going to waste. Those, all those people, 100,000 of them that paid on average 12 bucks, they're just going to waste. Whereas if she had a trusted partner who could find the next Amanda Palmer and handle all this craziness, you could do it again. That's what I'm talking about. That asset is dramatically cuts the cost of new customer acquisition and dramatically increases speed to market and trust. Here's what people in business will always pay for. If an individual is paying X to get Y and you can prove to them they can get 2Y for the same amount of X, they'll try it. Now, that's not often something you can promise. But if you can promise it and deliver on it, then there will be a line out the door. So if you're a sales trainer, for example, and the people who graduate from your sales class close twice as many sales, because it's that good, you're not going to have any trouble over time growing your business. Because they are already measuring things on this axis, and you just took them from here to here. You didn't give them a new thing to measure. You just said you're going to get more of that thing you're paying for in a very trustworthy way. Right? That's really different than saying, I'm going to charge you for something you're not used to paying for. So productivity is about getting more for the amount invested. So since you're in the business to business, business selling business anyway, you need to say, what are people paying for? And can I dramatically increase it? So if, if it's presentation coaching, I would say something like this. Which group of people 
has a very high stakes presentation, that I can reach, that share a worldview, and that understand that paying for stuff is worth it if it makes things get better. That's a tiny fraction of the people who actually give presentations. And then the second thing I would say is, they're probably not going to be a repeat customer if all I'm doing is teaching them how to make a presentation. Which means I have to charge a lot for it, or I have to do the whole organization. See why? Yes, it makes sense. Or I'm not going to teach them, I'm going to do it for them. And that's what Nancy Duarte does. Two different businesses. So Nancy Duarte says, every time you need to do a presentation, send me your bad slides, send me your notes, I will send you back better slides with better notes. Okay? And if you are a CEO or you work for a CEO or you do big presentations, etc., she can charge you $10,000 a presentation because it's worth it. I have no idea what she really charges, but let's just say. And over time, because she's generous, she writes books about it, she trains about it, etc., because she'd love to teach a man to fish. But the core of the business is, can I be a service business for this incredibly important thing that no one's ever paid to buy before? But she understands that the vast majority of people will never hire her to do a presentation, which is fine with her. She just wants some people. You see what I mean? Yes. So, the answer to your question is not, how do I persuade everyone to pay for this thing they're not used to paying for? It's, how do I find the few people who are eager to pay for it? Thank you for listening to The Startup School with Seth Godin. Listen to Episode 6 next week when Seth discusses television, advertising, and the long tail. To learn more about Seth or to subscribe to his daily blog, please visit sethgodin.com. You can also find his books in any bookstore or on amazon.com. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Aukerman. For more information, visit earwolf.com.